And if you're still in the room with me, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, that's okay. There's Bibles underneath the chairs. And you can open that Bible to page 811. And that will take you to Matthew 6. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 4 today. We're in the next chapter. Well, is it real or is it cake? That's the premise behind a a new game show, a new TV game show. Is it real or is it cake? Now, the contestants work very hard to make an object entirely out of cake, but they want to make it indistinguishable from another real object. So let's take a bowling ball uh, or a suitcase or even tacos. And these contestants make cake tacos or cake bowling balls or cake suitcases. And they look very realistic. They are indistinguishable by the naked, naked eye from the real objects. And, and so they put their cake piece in the middle of other real objects on platforms, and then the judges or the panel looks at these things and tries to determine which one is cake and which ones are the real objects. Very, very difficult because these contestants actually do a good job. It's amazing to see what they can do with cake or sugar uh, over these objects. And and whether the judges are right or wrong, they make their decision. Uh, The result is always determined by the host coming up with a knife and he tries to cut the object. If he cuts through it and reveals the inside, you see, oh, this one was actually cake. Obviously, if he can't cut it, then it's plastic or steel or leather or something else. It's amazing. When they cut open this cake, you see that it is cake by seeing the inside. Seeing the inside of the object. Now, this is the reality of religion. There are believers and make-believers. There are phonies and their followers. It's difficult to tell the difference between them because on the outside, they look the same. They're involved in the same activities. They go to church. They both pray. They both read their Bibles. They both may give money to charity, church, community, etc. So how can you tell the difference between them? The real Christians and the fake ones. The real believers and the make-believers. You have to take a knife to them. Not a real knife. But the sword of God's Word. It's God's Word that opens them up and shows who they really are. Where? On the inside. On the inside. The sword of God's Word reveals the inside. It reveals the motive behind their religiosity. And that's the difference between a real believer and a make-believer, a, a fake, or a phony or a follower. It's the motive behind what they do, why they do what they do. And it is the motive that Jesus exposes in this next section of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus distinguishes masterfully between man-pleasing religion and God-pleasing religion. The fakes and the true followers. Now, i got to be careful to explain what I mean by God-pleasing religion. What do I mean by that? I think religion gets a bad rap because it's often associated with uh, works-based righteousness religion. So, in other words, religions that advocate for you to do a lot of good things to essentially earn your own salvation. That's not what Christianity is. We know that. It's very clear from the Bible. Christianity is faith-based. We believe and we have faith in Jesus Christ who did the good works and earned our righteousness. And that good work and that righteousness is credited on our behalf. And so we are saved through Him and in Him alone. Amen? That's the Gospel. It is a gift of grace. And so what do I mean then by saying God-pleasing religion It's not a religion that tries to earn God's favor. It's rather 
a faith that produces works out of joy, out of love, and out of gratitude. It's like a child that looks over and does something and wants to see their father smile. Their father, uh, Lord willing, loves them unconditionally already. They didn't have to earn the relationship, but they want to make their dad proud in a sense. Out of joy, out of love, and out of gratitude because he is your father and he has already made you his child. That's what I mean by God-pleasing religion. It's It's the religion that is motivated by joy, gratitude, and thanksgiving to God for saving you. That's the kind of good works that real faith produces in the life of a Christian. But a hypocrite doesn't have that motive. A hypocrite is not motivated by a desire to please their father. They're motivated by a desire to please people, others. And so I have to ask you, do you know God as father? Are you his child? How can we tell the difference between someone who truly knows him as father and one who only calls him father and nothing more? Matthew 6 is the knife that we need to cut us open and show us who we really are. So why don't you look at it, Matthew 6, verse 1, and we'll, we'll go through this first section. And point number one in your outline is man-pleasing religion versus God-pleasing religion. Jesus really makes his case in the first verse. This first verse is like a summary for the next section. So man-pleasing religion versus God-pleasing religion. Look at verse 1. Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now let's just unpack this phrase. First, beware. What's that? That's a warning. Tread carefully. Take care. Watch out for what I am about to say. What do we need to watch out for? What is it of practicing your righteousness? You see that in the text? Now, again, just a reminder, we're not saved by good works. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Good works are the product or the fruit of genuine salvation. It's the result of our transformation. Faith produces righteousness. Now, We haven't got to the difference yet, because guess what? Anybody can do good works. Anybody can pray. Anybody can read their Bibles. Anybody can show up to church every Sunday. Anybody can even serve, set up chairs. Anybody could do most good works. But what's the difference? Jesus tells us at the end of this phrase. Look back at the text. Matthew 6.1 Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Do you see the purpose phrase there? Why do they do these good works? This is the hypocrite's motive. In order to be seen. In order to be seen. To be recognized. Not by God, but by fellow man. See, Jesus doesn't leave it at beware of practicing your righteousness just before other people. He isn't advocating for only a secret religion here. Uh, You know, pray in the closet, but don't pray in the community. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Of course, there are some righteous deeds that we have to do in public, that we have to do before other people. We serve one another, do we not? And there's commandments to do that. Men are commanded to pray in front of the church in 1 Timothy 2. And there are other uh, public uh, works that we are called to do, but um, the difference between the hypocrite and the true disciple of Jesus Christ is in the motive behind it. It's the purpose phrase here. In order to be seen. Do you do it in order to be seen by the public eye and recognized? Or do you do it to be seen and recognized by your Father? By your Father. Maybe this illustration will help. If if your good deeds were like arrows and you pick up your bow to fire them off, which target are you aiming at? What is your aim? What is your goal? Is it to be seen and recognized by the public? Or are you aiming at the target of pleasing your heavenly Father? Because guess what? You can't have both. You can't have both. 
If your aim is to please men, then you just lost simultaneously the favor of your father. God will not have both. God will not have both. Jesus says, beware of your religious people-pleasing. Why? Look at the end of verse 1. Why do you need to watch out for this? For then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. If people-pleasing is your aim, then you can know this for sure. The Father's reward is lost. It's gone. You forfeited it. If if pleasing people is your aim, then guess what you're taking taking to the bank to deposit? What's your payout? Nothing from God. Only that which comes from men. See, Jesus wants to positively motivate you here to do your good works not for the sake of others, but to do it for your Father because His reward is far greater than that of this world or those that come from men. And when you live your life with an aim to please other people around you, to impress them, to be recognized, to receive public accolades, then you're forfeiting something far greater. The stakes are high. You're leaving a lot more on the table by trying to just please a few men. Even many men. That doesn't compare to the reward that you would get from your Father. So it's one or the other. Galatians 1.10 Paul says this. He says, For Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. You can't have both. You can't aim at the target for pleasing men and hit the target for pleasing God. Does that make sense? So it's one or the other. And Christian, we need to choose our target. What's your motive? Why do you do what you do? Why? Not what do you do. Why do you do what you do? I think I told you this story before, but when I was a young man, a mentor in my life was helping me in the area of time management. So I made the mistake of telling this guy, who was my superior, um, I'm really busy. He said, oh, you're busy, huh? He said, okay, let's sit down and go over your schedule together. So I remember the conversation like it was yesterday. It was at Coast Surgery Center in San Diego, in the uh, doctor's lounge. That's where our, our jobs collided. We were medical sales guys, okay? And so we sat in the doctor's lounge, and he had me write out my schedule on a sheet of paper, Monday through Sunday, log every minute, every minute of time that you spend, every activity that you uh, do during the week. And so I filled it out, and I slid the paper across the table, feeling pretty proud of myself because it looked like a full schedule. And he took out his red pen, started circling, crossing, circling, crossing, circling, crossing. It was like the teacher grading the assignment. And it's like I did everything wrong. There was so much red on that paper. He slid the paper back to me and he said, and I, I asked him, I said, well, what are the circles? He said, those are all gaps of time in your schedule. What are you going to do with that time? It's unaccounted for. He counted 10 extra hours. And then I said, well, what are the crosses then? He said, that is time that I don't think you should be spending on that area. That's that's essentially bloated time. You're spending too much time there. That shouldn't be a priority in your life. That needs to be corrected. There are other things that could be neglected there. Man, it was really convicting. It was, uh, but also one of the most helpful conversations I've ever had in my life. I'll never forget it. It changed the way that I thought about my schedule. Christian, I would love for you to imagine yourself alone in a room sitting across the table from God Almighty. Not another man, but sitting across from God. And I'd like you to slide two documents across the table to him. Your schedule and your budget. Because I'll tell you what you worship. It's what you devote your time and your money to. Slide two documents across the table to 
God Almighty, both your schedule and your budget. And I want, him, I want you to see him evaluate these things. And you know that God is not just going to evaluate the activity, what you do. God is going to evaluate the motive behind every single minute and every single dollar that you spend. He knows your heart. He sees right through it. He knows why you do what you do. And he's evaluating, he's circling, he's crossing, he's circling, he's crossing. What do you think he might say about the time that you spend and even the money you spend? First of all, let's ask this question. How much time or money is spent on religious activity? That is the activities that relate to worship of God. How much time devoted to Bible study? How much time devoted to prayer? How much time devoted to the church in faithful service? in loving one another, in fellowship. Is it a tenth of your schedule? Is it a tenth of a percent of your schedule? What kind of religious activity are we working with here? Let's know what we're working with first. And then, then with that probably small amount of time, why do you do what you do? What might God write on that piece of paper behind the motive behind the time and the money that you spend? in your religious activities? Do you do these things for public recognition? Will He cross it out because it was done to please people, not for Him? He, you did it so that people would see and recognize you as a good person, as a religious person, as a faithful, committed, generous Christian. And you need to be honest with yourself because you sit across the table from the omniscient God who knows why you do what you do. You can't lie to Him. You can't fake it. He has the knife that can expose you. And how much of that time and money is motivated by private praise? How much might he find, might look down at your schedule and your budget and go, yep, that's for me and only me. I know it. They are serving me with a pure heart out of love and gratitude and joy for what I've done for them. It's you and the Lord. He knows it. You know it. Nobody else has to. Nobody else has to. He slides both documents back across the table. In this sermon, Christian, Jesus wants you to evaluate your motives. Why do you do what you do? Is it for men or is it for Him? That's what Jesus is getting at here. And for the remainder of this section, He highlights three religious activities. Three religious activities. It's not all the religious activities that we could be participating in. It's, it's a few of them, but they're very important. The first is charity. Generosity, maybe. The second is prayer. And the third is fasting. Three religious activities. And in each one, he differentiates between man-pleasing religion and God-pleasing religion. Between the hypocrite and the sincere Christ follower. And one earns an earthly reward, the other earns a heavenly reward. So let's look at the first religious activity that Jesus talks about in verses 2 through 4. He talks about charity. Charity. He says in verse 2, Thus, when you give to the needy, when you give to the needy, that is one Greek word there, and it's a word that can encompass uh, deeds of compassion, acts of benevolence, charity. Now, when we think of charity, you probably think of a large organization, a big nonprofit that takes care of the needs of people. What, I, what Jesus is getting at here is individual generosity, okay? Your personal affections and actions that take care of the needy people around you. Jesus is talking about your personal generosity here. This is an ex expectation for the individual. So Jesus presents two ways to do it. Two ways to do it. The first is man-pleasing charity. That's point number two. Man-pleasing charity. Look at how Jesus describes man-pleasing charity. Look at verse two. He said, thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, 
they have received their reward. The man-pleasers are called hypocrites. This comes from a, a Greek word that was used for the play actors in the first century. The pretenders, the fakes, the phonies. And look at what these hypocrites do. They, they sound the trumpet in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Two attributes of their charity. It's loud and it's proud. It's loud and it's proud. How can we distinguish between man-pleasing charity and God-pleasing charity? Well, the man-pleasing charity is loud and it's proud. They sound the trumpet. First, it's loud. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about a literal trumpet here, okay? They didn't have like trumpets at their hips ready to go if they were going to give a dollar to somebody. I think the trumpet here is, is a metaphor, right? What do trumpets do? When you hear a trumpet, where do you look? Towards the sound. It's drawing attention. These people draw attention to themselves. Look at me. And there's a variety of ways to do it. There are a variety of uh, trumpets and volumes of trumpets that you, you and I use, right? To draw attention to ourselves. Now there's the very brandish and flaunting trumpets, like sweeping gestures and dramatic presentations of generosity. For example, like Linda McMahon, who... who you know, had a massive ceremony for herself, a ribbon cutting, when she donated $5 million to have a building named after her. So her name's on the building. Or you guys have seen this, the hundreds of movie stars who host these lavish fundraisers, dress in these incredibly expensive gowns and tuxedos, and then draw attention to themselves as they are, quote-unquote, you know, donating for a good cause. Look at how much that I gave to this charity. Now there's that, but there are also more subtle, creative trumpets that you and I use. We like to toot our own horn, right? No pun intended. And we, we do this by just kind of casually bringing up our generosity in conversation. Oh, you know, I, I gave this much to the safari park or you know, I gave this much to that medical organization, that charity, whatever it may be. You kind of bring it up, right? Because you're drawing attention to yourself. Or maybe you give your money in such a way because you know others are watching and you're concerned about what they might think. And so you, you know, when the offering basket goes by, you go, oh, well, um, people are looking at me. Here's a hundred, right? Or more. There are subtle and creative ways that we draw attention to ourselves, But the motive is the same. Whether you blow the trumpet loud or you do it more subtly, what's the motive? Look back at the text. That they may be praised by who? Others. That's the motive. That others would see me and praise me. So it's not just loud, it's proud. It's proud. This is the aim of the man-pleaser, to be praised, to be adored, to essentially be magnified by men. Oh, look at them. This is the pat on the back that you were hoping for. This is the nod of approval. This is the roar of applause at the fundraiser. Some are even unabashed about it. They outright say, I give so that I can feel better about myself. Have you heard that? I do it so I can feel better about myself. So, oh, so it's ultimately about you and what other people think of you. Is this your motive, Christian? Do you draw attention to your generosity, boastfully, brandishly, or subtly? Do you make a point to let others know when you're being generous, or do you do it in a way that is noticeable? The motive is to, what? Be praised by men. So you take up your bow and your arrow, you aim it at pleasing men, and you hit the target. What's your reward then? Look at what Jesus says in verse 2. He says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Great, you hit the target. Here's your payout. Here's 
what you get. Jesus says, man-pleasing gets what you pay for. You bought the approval of others, and you get it. Okay, great. So they gave me a nod of approval. They gave me a pat on the back. I even got the roar of applause, and Jesus says, that's it. It's done. That's the end of it. There's your pay stub. Go to the bank with that. Congratulations, you got a name on a plaque. Good for you. Congratulations, you're named biggest donor at the fundraiser. Good for you. You might even get a feature on the front cover of Time magazine. Whoa. Okay, more realistically, for you and I. You may be publicly recognized in the church as a generous person. You may be respected by your peers. You may even get a nod of approval from those people that you're really trying to impress. There is your reward and nothing more. You got it. And then you die. And you stand before God in heaven. And you have now eternity in front of you. And you say, Lord, Lord, didn't you see my generosity? Don't you know that I donated millions to that charity? Oh, man, I got the nod of approval from those friends that I was trying to impress. I, I donated generous amounts to the church and to my community. Don't you see my plaque on the wall? That building, it's got my name on it. Do you recognize these acts of charity? And God will say, no, I don't recognize your charity. And in fact, I don't recognize you. Depart from me. I don't know you. What is done for the recognition of men on earth is not recognized by God in heaven. Pursuing an earthly reward means that you simultaneously lose the heavenly one. The earthly reward is fleeting. It's empty. It's ultimately worthless. It's vanity, Solomon says. Beware of man-pleasing charity. It ultimately gets you nowhere. And the end is bleak. Getting the earthly reward is not a congratulations from God. It's an, oh, that's unfortunate. Because you just missed the heavenly one. Don't live for the things of this world. Don't live for the recognition and the approval of others in your generosity. Beware. Beware of it. That's man-pleasing charity, and that's the end of it. Now, what is God-pleasing charity? Here's the difference. God-pleasing charity. This is point number three. Jesus contrasts which what it, with what it looks like to truly please your Father in heaven with your generosity. Look at verse 3. He says, but when you give to the needy. Notice he says, when you give. This is an expectation. This is an expectation from a Christian. When you give. Not if, when. Because Christians are expected to be generous. Both in the church and in our community. Hebrews 13.16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Generous Generosity done with the right motive does please God. It does bring joy to your Heavenly Father. And so we're expected to do that. And the answer for avoiding man-pleasing charity is not to swing the pendulum to the other side and say, okay, well, I'm just not going to be generous. I'm not going to do it at all. I can't do anything right, so I'm not going to move forward at all, right? That's what a lot of Christians do. That's not the answer. The answer is to not restrain your generosity, but to privatize it. To keep it undisclosed, confidential, as far as it depends on you. Look at what Jesus says about how you ought to give. He says, but when you give to the needy, verse 3, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Isn't that kind of a funny phrase? How do I do something with my right hand and my left hand doesn't know what I'm going to do? What's the idea behind that? What is Jesus saying? He's saying that it, 
the idea is that you're giving in such a way that it's concealed, it's so private that you're almost hiding it from yourself. You're not dwelling on it. You're not boasting in yourself saying, oh, look at me, or look at what I did, or, or how can I give so that other people will see me? He says it's quick. It's spontaneous at times. The action is subtle. The motive is pure. There's only two concerns on your mind. Meeting the need in front of you and honoring your heavenly Father. That's it. There's no ulterior motive, no man-pleasing agenda, no buyer's remorse. Oh, man, I wish I didn't give that much. Or no reminding yourself of other people and where, where, where they're at and whether they're seeing you or not. No reminiscing over your generosity going, man, that was a really good thing that I did. Jesus says this, give and forget. Give and forget. Of course, there are situations where you can't give anonymously. Right? But that's not the goal. The goal is not to only give when you can be anonymous here. He, he's saying with the motive of only pleasing your Father. As far as you're able, keep it anonymous. I love what MacArthur says on this point. He says, Our purpose in generosity should be to meet every need and leave the bookkeeping to God. Isn't that a cool thought? Look who's keeping track. Look who's really tallying your pure generosity. Look back at the text. Who's watching? Verse 4. So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. God's watching. God's keeping track. And that's all that really matters. I remember a time in my life when I played sports for an audience of one. I remember at a time in my life where there was only one man in the stands that I cared about. Guess who it was? My dad. My dad. I'm thankful for my dad. I'm thankful that he made efforts and sacrifices to be at my games. And, and when I was little, that's all that mattered. And then when I got older in high school and stuff, I started you know, thinking about my friends watching me or the girl that I liked watching me or you know, maybe the scouts who would notice me. And it all got convoluted after that. But there was a time in my life when I was just playing for my dad. I wanted to, as the good old boys say, I wanted to make my dad proud. And so when I hit a jump shot, scored a touchdown, made a tackle, got on base, there was only one reaction I cared about. I looked into the stands and there was only one person I wanted to see, and it was my dad. My dad. Now, of course, I knew that my dad loved me unconditionally. Whether I had a good game or a bad game, he was there and he was watching. He was ready to celebrate with me in my success and also ready to comfort me in my failure. At the time, what mattered was just his presence. Just knowing he was there. He was there for me. Knowing he was watching. Now, I know that everybody in this room, not everybody in this room had that same experience with your earthly father. But I want to know, I want you to know that you can have that with your heavenly Father. Just to know that He's there and He's watching. I think we easily forget the simplicity and joy of this truth in our faith. Is that you're a child of God and you have a heavenly Father who's there. He's watching you. He sees everything in the public and in private. And this can be a fearful motivation, like, oh my goodness, God is watching me. And it, it should be at times, right? To steer us away from sin. But it can also be an inspiring motivation. One that motivates you positively. It means this, the little things you do, the things that are overlooked by other people, the things that are unrecognized and unappreciated from, by your spouse or your, your children or, or the people in the church, they just don't see it. It's the secret acts of and these efforts of charity and kindness that seem to be unrewarded in this life, God sees. He notices. He's watching. And He's ready to celebrate with you. He's so thankful, so glad that you did it for Him and not for others. I pray that you would be motivated to do good things in the secret places of your life. To not even be distracted by what other people think of you but to live for the pure and simplicity of your religion, your faith is just to please my Father. I want to know that I'm honoring Him with every good thing that I do, and I'm not doing it with ulterior motive. 
If he's in the stands, who else matters, Christian? For you as a true child of God, nothing else matters. You're affirming that in your heart now. But for those of you who are the phonies, the hypocrites, that sounds horrible. That sounds like no option for you. You're you're doing your religion for the sake of others. And I would just strongly plead with you to turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. Because if you're living to please others, you are not recognized by the Heavenly Father. There is great assurance knowing that God loves you unconditionally. You're His child. He's your Father. You can be confident. He's ready to celebrate with you in your success. He's ready to comfort you in your failure. You don't do good things to earn His love, but you play for Him because He means everything to you. Your generosity is a gift to others, but ultimately it's a love offering to Him. You know that word for reward literally means payback? If you give for God, He's going to pay you back. That's what that means. So when you invest your charity into God's economy, you get a great return. A better return than what this world can offer you. How does God pay us back? When are you going to see the money? Show me the money. When would God pay you back? Well, obviously we know it's not always monetary. It's not always like physical money. We don't preach the same gospel as the prosperity preachers who say, give what all you can to God and He's going to give you back tenfold. And what they mean is Lamborghinis in the mansion in Malibu. No, that's not what we preach. God pays us back and it's according to His economy. It's often blessings that are not material, but spiritual and enriching and fulfilling. How does God pay us back? Well, first of all, you have assurance. You have that confidence in your soul that your heart is aligned with His. That you're doing it for Him and Him alone. Let me just tell you, the confidence or assurance is something I would not trade for billions and billions of dollars. I would not take Elon Musk's wealth over my own assurance of my salvation. Assurance, confidence that you know Christ and that you have a relationship with the Heavenly Father is precious and priceless. And that, if anything else, that's enough. I don't need anything else. And that's the first thing. God calls you to generosity and when you give sincerely from a pure heart and worship to Him, you can be confident that you're walking in His will, that you're truly a child of God, that you're living for His glory. And there's no greater feeling in the world than that. Also, to add to that, God promises to provide for you. Did you know that? We're going to get to it, Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34. Here's the principle. You're never going to outgive God's provision for you. You can give as much as you want. You want to keep giving and giving and giving to people. You know what God promises? He's still going to care for you. He's going to feed you. He's going to clothe you like the lilies of the field. You can't outgive God's provision for you. You don't need to be concerned with your sincere generosity that, oh boy, I might be giving too much and, and I don't know if my needs are going to be met. God will provide. God provides and cares for His children. He promises that. And God promises to bless you. The principle is true and it's biblical. Give and it will be given to you. God says in Malachi 3, did you know that this verse is in the Bible? He says, test me. Test my generosity. Bring your tithe to my house and I'm going to pour down blessing until you have no more need. Malachi 3.10. He says, whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. God loves the cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. I encourage you, test God with your generosity. Give selfishly, sacrificially, and generously. You cannot outgive God in this life. The cheerful giver is never going to be left wanting. Now, the ultimate payback is not going to be in this life. You know where you're going to find the ultimate payback? In His kingdom. Which is what Jesus is talking about. 
He's pointing us forward, right? There's kingdom conditions and living now that ultimately results and reveals itself in the kingdom to come. Paul talks about a heavenly crown that's waiting for him and all others who love Jesus Christ when he appears. 2 Timothy 4.8. Paul talks about a heavenly reward given for the good works done on earth in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He talks about heavenly storehouses being full and overflowing. There's a great inheritance that's secure and waiting for God's children when they enter glory. Ephesians 1.11. And in Revelation, you see a glimpse of this kingdom. You see the followers of Christ ruling and reigning with Him in His kingdom forever and ever forward. So, with that in view, you can have the plaque. That's nice. With your name on it. I'll take my name in the book of life. You could have the crown of this kingdom. I'll take his crown. You have the riches of this economy. I'll invest in his economy. You could live for the recognition and praise of men. Or you can live for that of your heavenly father. Choose your target. What's your aim? What's your aim? Which will you have? What do you want? What's the aim of your charitable giving? What, why do you give to the church and why do you give to that person in the community? Is it for the recognition of men or is it for the glory of God? Let me check. the. Okay, I'm good. Time. One of the greatest passages on the principles of generosity is 2 Corinthians 9. I'd like you to turn there. I think it's a really helpful place to go in conclusion. This is instructions for a church, a local church. And there's great principles of generosity in here. As Christians, we have an individual responsibility to be generous not only in our communities, as we run into people on the road, out in the public square, but also in the synagogue or for us, in the church. We are to be generous givers in the church. And so our generosity flows in all of life. 2 Corinthians 9 talks about generosity in the church. Context. For the sake of, just for context, Paul is calling the Corinthians to give generously towards a cause, struggling Christians in Jerusalem. And and they're really struggling, by the way. It's not like, you know, they were looking for bigger houses. They were looking for food and, and shelter and clothing. A struggle that many of us have have maybe not experienced. And so Paul gives these principles as he's asking the Corinthian Christians to give generously toward this fund. And in verse 7, 2 Corinthians 9-7, he gives helpful instruction for us on how to give generously. He says in 9-7, each one, each person, each individual, must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, not by force, not against their will, but in a sacrificial sense, willing to give, for God loves a what? Cheerful giver, not a miserable one. God loves a cheerful giver. I shared this passage at our members' meeting, and and some read this passage and they find relief. Oh, phew. And I thought God wanted my 10%. And 10% is a lot, right? Good. So God's requirement in the New Testament, that was a, the tithe was an Old Testament principle. So in the New Testament, there's no number. There's no number standard, if you will. I can give less than 10%. Oh, that's a huge relief. Some read that passage this way. I read the passage in a different way. I, I see, look at that first phrase. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. That's concerning to me. Because I'm not the only one who sees my heart. Who sees my heart? Remember the guy that you slid both the schedule and the budget over to in the room alone? God Almighty. Omniscient God. He sees your heart. He sees the motive behind your generosity. Not just the amount. He sees your heart. So I read that passage and think, oh boy, I'm in trouble. 
I'm in trouble. Imagine if God were required or required you to, with every donation, that you would walk into basically his heavenly throne room and stand in his presence and, and bring your donation to him for approval before you gave it to the homeless guy that you ran into the street, or before you gave your offerings in the church. Any act of generosity that you do out in life, imagine if God required you to show him first. Show me your gift. So you have to walk into the heavenly throne room and you have to bring him the cash offering that you're going to give in whatever circumstance and you're showing him, God, here's my gift. Here is my generosity. How might, if that were the requirement, how might that change the amount that you give? Oh boy, that might change it significantly, not in the downward trend, but maybe in the upward trend. You might be more generous, more sacrificial in your gift, but that's not the aim of what Jesus is getting at in our sermon in Matthew 6, 1 through 4. How might that change why you give your gift? Are you going to walk before omniscient God who sees your heart and pretend like you're being generous? Pretend like this gift is for them when it's really for all the other people watching or for the recognition and praise of others. You might check your motive before you walk into that throne room with your offering. And that's what Jesus calls us to do back in Matthew 6. When Paul says each one must give as he's decided in his heart, that means not only the amount, but the motive behind your gift needs to be checked needs to be evaluated. I encourage you to even bring up that imagery in your brain before you give something to somebody. Not that you have to sit there and think about it for a long time, but to go, I remember, yeah, this is for the Lord ultimately, not for the recognition and praise of others. I want to make sure that the amount I give is generous, but also that my heart is truly generous and not convoluted by ulterior motives. God is present and He sees everything from your heart to your bank account to your credit card statements. Are you generous for the recognition of men or for the glory of God? And of course, we cannot end a sermon on generosity without pointing to the generosity of God our Father towards us. Amen? You remember that we are generous because God was generous to us. Our fruits of generosity are, pro, are products of God's generosity towards us in sending Jesus Christ. You might still be in 2 Corinthians. Look at chapter 8, verse 9. Let's end with our motivation of remembering God's generosity to us so that we would offer sincere worship to our Heavenly Father. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says this, For you know, I love the way that Paul brings that up. You know, it's kind of that loving reminder that's also a dig. You remember, right, that God was generous to you? You know, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, His charity, His generosity, that though He was rich, in the heavens glorified God on a heavenly throne, sovereign over the universe, all the earthly riches and heavenly treasures were at His disposal. Though He was rich, yet for your sake He became what? Poor. He gave all of that up willingly. Why? So that you, by His poverty, might become rich. And he's not talking about Bitcoin there. He's not talking about you becoming a millionaire. He's talking about you having the riches of salvation. The heavenly treasure. A relationship with God, your Father. The blessing of walking and following Him. And ultimately, His kingdom come. I pray that you would see the heavenly reward as far greater than the cheap, cheap, cheap rewards of this earth and this life. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, You have been so generous to us. 
even the fact that we wake up breathing every day. That we have another day to breathe, to live, to laugh, to enjoy relationships, to enjoy the beautiful weather. So many little gifts that we don't recognize and we don't give you glory and credit for. Yet the ultimate gift is that you, despite our sinfulness, despite our rebellion, us being enemies to you, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, your beloved son. And he suffered as a man, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And he rose from the dead so that I might live. So that I can be saved, justified, cleansed, made new. And so that I could receive an incredible inheritance far above and beyond this world. Anything this world can offer. Stored in heaven for me. We remember your generosity, God. And we see the call of Jesus. That we are to be generous also. But not so that we would please others. What a deflated goal. What a low standard. Just to impress other people. Help us to be motivated by the high standard. A love, a joy, a thankfulness, and a gratitude to our Heavenly Father who's given so much for us. As children, that's a privilege and a joy. I pray for some in this room who don't know you as Father. Who don't know Jesus Christ. That they would repent of their sins. Believe by faith in Jesus alone for salvation. And that they might have a new relationship with you. So that their good works aren't to earn favor with you, God. But out of knowing they have your favor, that they would walk in a way that's pleasing and glorifying to you. Be with us this week as we practice and apply this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen.